It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 287 for April 8, 2012. This week, everything but the kitchen sink. We'll have some malware for your Mac, a promise that Apple's Chinese workers will get a break, word of big layoffs at Yahoo, but Yahoo's legal department is busy on both offense and defense, Anonymous attacks some Chinese government websites, Google convicted of being evil in Australia, and ebooks no longer the future, they are the present. This is one of those weeks during which lots of things caught my attention, but not one of them was big enough to stand as the primary article on TechBiter Worldwide. So this week you get a laundry list of topics that you might find worthwhile or amusing or interesting or useless or boring or stupid. So step right up, one size fits all, and here we go. If you're one of those Mac owners who believes that Macs are inherently resistant to all malware, Here's your next wake-up call. Russian antivirus company Dr. Webb sounded the first alarm this week about a Mac-only botnet that has taken over 550,000 Macs, including some that are located in Cupertino. That's Apple's hometown. Apple computers are growing in popularity and they're becoming more attractive targets for the bad guys. It's true that the underlying operating system Macs run on makes those computers more resistant to some kinds of attacks. But Macs have been spared in part because fraudsters depend on volume and Windows is still the world's largest operating system. Apple, though, has taken enough market share to make Macs an attractive target now. Other sources place the number of infected machines well above 600,000, and in case you consider a warning from a Russian antivirus company not to be credible, consider this. On Tuesday, Apple released a patch to address the threat. In other words, this is not a late April Fool's Day joke. According to Wikipedia, the backdoor flashback 39 Trojan targets an unpatched Java vulnerability within the Mac operating system. Now, Oracle fixed the vulnerability way back in February, but Apple dawdled and didn't distribute the patch to Mac users until April 3rd. That was after the vulnerability had already been exploited. Computers are infected after the user is redirected to a compromised site where JavaScript code loads an infected applet. The computer then downloads and runs other malicious code. Lobotomized machines are then used for illegal activities. Dr. Webb says 57% of the infected computers are in the United States, 20% are in Canada, and about 13% in the UK. If you'd like more information, you can find it on the Dr. Webb website, and you'll find a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you have a Mac, be sure to visit the Apple website and get the patch. The 
company Apple hired to look into working conditions at Foxconn factories in China has criticized the long hours the company demands of workers, working conditions, and pay. Apple's CEO Tim Cook has insisted that the company, headquartered in Taiwan, do a better job. And Foxconn, that's the company everybody's talking about, says that it will reduce working hours and thereby effectively increase wages. Cook, who became Apple's CEO shortly before Steve Jobs died, seems to have taken a personal interest in the situation at the company that manufactures many of Apple's products. Walter Isaacson's book about the life of Steve Jobs included an explanation of how Cook worked with Jobs. Cook came to Apple in 1997 and was charged with improving the company's then disjointed and largely dysfunctional manufacturing operations. By working with various manufacturing partners, most of them in Asia, Cook was able to convert Apple's manufacturing operations to what they are today. Jobs never visited any of the factories in China. Apple's 2012 annual report published in January identified 156 companies that supply parts and manufacturing for Apple's products. That was a first. Labor rights activists caution that reports of poor working conditions are often followed by promises to do better. But when the spotlight is removed, the substandard conditions return. So we'll wait and see. Apple specifies that factory workers cannot be asked to work more than 60 hours a week. Yes, that is one-third longer than the standard U.S. work week, which is 40 hours. Even with those restrictions in place, though, more than 10% of factories that create Apple products do not comply with the 60-hour-per-week limit, according to Apple's annual report. And for its part, Foxconn says that by July 2013, it will reduce its work week to 49 hours, 49 hours is the limit set by Chinese law. Yes, July 13. That is more than a year from now. The ever-shrinking Yahoo plans to drop another 2,000 employees. That's about 14% of the company's remaining workforce. The company owns some popular websites, and it is profitable. So what's behind all these reductions? CEO Scott Thompson says that the restructuring will allow Yahoo to be more innovative and that the changes will put the company's customers first. Over the past two months, says Thompson, management has fundamentally rethought every part of the business and will continue to actively consider all options. This means cutting to the core business units, media and communications. In a memo to employees, Thompson said that Yahoo's content, media and communications experiences must be best in class. Yahoo will also focus on making its core platforms and systems a genuine strength for Yahoo. Thompson says this means improving personalization and bringing new products and services to market faster than before. At least, that's what I think he said. The memo is couched in some pretty heavy PR speak that obfuscates when it really should be clarifying. According to the CEO's memo, Yahoo is intensifying our efforts on our core business and redeploying resources to our most urgent priorities. Our goal is to get back to our core purpose, putting our users and advertisers first, and we are moving aggressively to achieve that goal. See what I mean? 
The changes aren't really much of a surprise. Thompson had announced earlier that he would be making significant changes, possibly to avoid the fate of former CEO Carol Bartz, who was fired when she was unable to push Yahoo in the right direction. In making the announcement, Yahoo didn't say where the cuts would be made, but did note that the company expects to save $375 million a year by making the job cuts. Severance packages will cost the company about $125 to $145 million in the first year. like Yahoo's all over the news this week. Facebook has fired return shots at Yahoo after Yahoo filed suit against Facebook, claiming that Facebook is illegally using Yahoo's patented technology. And the legal activity might just possibly have something to do with Facebook's planned initial public stock offering that's planned for later this spring. Responding to a Yahoo lawsuit that claims Facebook violated 10 of Yahoo's patents, attorneys for Facebook filed motions in San Francisco federal court denying the claims and accusing Yahoo of infringing on 10 patents held by Facebook, including a method of tagging photos and other digital content for which Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg is listed as the lead inventor. Software patents, I think, have done far more to harm the U.S. economy and software in general and the Internet than they've done to protect anything. There, I'm glad I got that out of the way. So now on with the story. Facebook's IPO is expected to raise billions and that makes it a very attractive target for the struggling Yahoo. That doesn't mean Facebook is squeaky clean, though, and Facebook recently acquired more than 700 patents from IBM. Money changes things. Yahoo and Facebook have cooperated on several joint ventures in the past, but now Yahoo says that Facebook is liable for the cost of using techniques that it developed. Instant messaging. Uh, Wait, wait, wasn't that AOL? And also, Yahoo claims that it invented the ability to customize web content and serve online ads. In its counterclaim, Facebook says that Yahoo is using techniques developed by Facebook to retrieve information, share content with other users, and provide recommendations to friends. In other words, what we have here is a typical he said, she said situation. known as Anonymous has apparently broken into some Chinese websites and defaced them. So does that make these guys good or bad? Are they freedom fighters or are they terrorists? Chinese government sites and sites run by official state agencies were among the targets. Anonymous said that the attacks were in protest of the government's control of its citizens and it urged Chinese citizens to create their own protests. Anonymous claims to have defaced 485 sites, and the group posted email addresses and other personal details that it found on those sites. The message Anonymous posted on the sites told the Chinese government that it is not infallible and that eventually its vile regime will fail. Chinese Internet users must contend with what is called the Great Firewall of China that strictly limits access to sites the government considers to be subversive. To help counteract the firewall, Anonymous posted information about how to beat the restrictions. One problem, though, most of the information was in English, not Chinese. 
The Chinese government denies any knowledge of the attacks, but news reports indicate that most of the sites Anonymous claims to have attacked were offline in the days following the event. I am one of the people who has complained many times about misleading ads that routinely show up on Google. Ads that promote, for example, 80% off iPads. These are ads that anyone with an IQ much above 80 will know are fraudulent, but they continue to appear, and Google continues to be paid for them. Well, now an Australian court has found Google guilty of engaging in what it terms misleading and deceptive conduct. According to the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ruling means that Google and other search engines will be held liable when they allow fraudulent ads to be served along with search results. Google thought it had dodged this particular bullet when it won a court ruling earlier, but Australia's federal court overturned the lower court decision. The ads in question appeared between early 2006 and mid-2007, when searches for the term Honda returned ads for a Honda competitor, but the ads suggested that the competitor was working with Honda Australia. Google says it's not responsible for those misleading ads and blames the advertiser. The advertiser, of course, is ultimately responsible, but it seems to me that Google needs to take at least some interest in what its advertisers are promoting. Overall, this seems to be a correct ruling, and one that might have some effect, someday, on Google's U.S. operations. For about 20% of us, books are no longer always physical objects that are stored on shelves. One in five Americans now reads books electronically. That's the result of a survey by the Pew Research Center. The survey, underwritten by a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, conducted interviews with 2,986 Americans aged 16 and older in November and December of last year. These were followed up by additional work in January and February. Pew says that four times more U.S. readers now read e-books compared with a similar survey less than two years ago. Electronic books are even winning space on the bedside table, as 45% of survey respondents said they read e-books in bed, slightly edging out the 43% who read Dead Trees versions in bed. Just four years ago, e-book sales were under $100 million per year. Last year, they neared $2 billion dollars, and some analysts are predicting sales of $3.5 billion this year. Amazon.com has more than half of that market. The advantages held by ebooks are obvious. Here's an example. Earlier this week, I heard an interview on NPR with linguist David Crystal. Crystal was discussing his new book, The Story of English in 100 Words. The book sounded interesting, and I found it was available from Amazon. 
minutes later and without leaving the house, I was able to start reading it on my computer screen. Later, I continued reading the book on a Kindle, and during lunch the following day at the office, I read even more on an Android tablet. The book is with me whenever I have access to a computer. Electronic readers are now available for $100 or less, and analysts suggest that market penetration will exceed 25% by 2016. Now, I think that might be an underestimation. This is the kind of technology that literally can go from zero to a hundred almost overnight. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website www.techbiter.com I'm Bill Blinn and if you'd like you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.